by paying some attention to your pricing strategy, it's actually the easiest way to dramatically increase your profits. Hi, I'm Joel Pilger, and you're listening to episode 47 of the RevThinking Podcast, the conversation between creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Blair Enns at Win Without Pitching, and our topic is Addicted to the Big Reveal. Welcome to RevThinking, the podcast for next-generation creative entrepreneurs. Now, here is your host, Joel Pilger. Hey, it's Joel. I am here in New York with Tim Thompson. We're here at Promax BDA. I'm really, of course, excited and proud that Blair joined me on the podcast to talk about not only Win Without Pitching, uh, as well as his new book, Pricing Creativity, but this idea also of being addicted to the big reveal. Blair, this week, we're going to talk about David C. Baker. Oh my God, yes, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I've been waiting so long for this. This is a topic of which you have infinite knowledge (laughs) and all sorts of fresh commentary, right? I know where all the bodies are buried. (laughs) How long have you been working with Mr. Baker? Uh, Since 2003. Oh, that's 15 years. So you yeah. have all kinds of dirt and just ugly stories we can tell about him on the, yeah, yeah. On the episode yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope he's listening. He, you know, of course, the people who are listening who don't know who David C. Baker is or who don't know who I am, we've already lost them. They, they just don't care. Right. They've moved on. They hit yeah. the next button on their iPad and they're going on to the next thing on their, <laughs> on their podcast show. Well, no, David was on the show recently. And of course, you and David are frequent collaborators, um, of which I have supremely benefited. But let me let you introduce yourself. So Blair, when without pitching, when did when without pitching get started in earnest? And I'm also curious, when did you write the manifesto? Yeah, so I left the agency business in 2001, I think it was, and started Win Without Pitching in early 2002. And the genesis for it was really, it was a lifestyle decision because I'd, um, many years earlier, I had tripped over this beautiful little mountain village in the middle of nowhere in British Columbia, a long way from where I was living at the time. And I really wanted to pick up my young family and move there. And it took us a while, but we finally succeeded. And so I I got out to this little village and I was working for an agency, a Canadian agency. I was running a remote office. And as I told my boss that I was leaving to go live the dream, he said, well, what are you going to do for a living? And I said, I don't know, maybe I'll make furniture. And if you knew me, you you would know how (laughs) funny that is. (laughs) Okay. And he said, well, why don't you just, why don't you keep working for me doing new business on contract? So I did that for a year. And while while I was working for this Vancouver-based firm, for a year, I was building um, the consulting practice that became Win Without Pitching. And then so in April of uh, 2002, I launched Win Without Pitching, the consulting practice, and things went along fairly nicely on that trajectory. I published the Win Without Pitching manifesto in July of 2010. And in twenty, at the very beginning of 2013, I decided to, I'm going to use the P word, I pivoted I don't mm. like that word, but I um, I pivoted the business from a solo consulting practice with a little bit of admin support to a scaled up training company. And now we're an eight person organization. And training in what areas? Because I'm not going to say the S word. Yeah. So when without pitching is a training 
program for creative professionals and you think, well, the type of training should be implied in the name, it's... Um, it's yeah, I'll use the S word. It's sales training for creative professionals. Now we don't use we just we just launched a new website today. In fact, it's going live right now. And oh fantastic. We don't we don't have the S word anywhere on the website. We learned a few years ago that if we send an email with the S word sales or selling or sell in the subject line, our open rates plummet. So we're usually pretty intimate with somebody or we've had a couple of conversations before we use the S word. Hmm. And it's not because it, it really is. I, I identify with this. I was there, I think back to my early agency career when I was handed new business development responsibility. And I would tell people, I was 22 and I was tell people I do new business for an ad agency and they'd say, oh, you're in sales. And I'd say, oh, no, 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 I'm, no, no. I'm not in sales and nothing. It's right. not near that dirty or sleazy or unsophisticated new business. No, I, build, yeah. I build relationships, right? Yeah, I, oh, yeah. All the horrible, trite things that I used to say. But, you know, um, so I think there's still a lot of creative professionals who, who um, look at selling think of it as a, a dirty thing because they look at selling as the act of talking people into things and they yeah. immediately conjure up all the horrible sales experiences that they've had on the buying side of the table. And those horrible experiences usually come from people whose incentives are not aligned to the customer's goals. So then they're incentivized to sell things to people that maybe they don't need. Uh, and maybe there's a lack of training and maybe there's just like a really high competitive drive coupled with some of those other things, like a lack of training and a poor incentive program. So all of those things together create these horrible buying experiences. And it's one of the things, one of the reasons why a lot of us, not just those of us in the creative professions, but a lot of us uh, have kind of a sour view mm -hmm. of what it means to sell. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm thinking of the classic used car salesman. Of course, realtors get a, you know, traditionally bad rap because those sales experiences are generally quite negative. Mm -hmm. So I have to say the win without pitching manifesto, it's one of those interesting things that I think of it almost like a turning point sort of in the industry. Now, you have, I think, historically dealt with advertising agencies, marketing agencies. And of course, MySpace is related, but a little different in that it's production companies and motion design studios and so forth, but they're still selling. I know I'm using that word. There's the S word, but they're still selling creativity and they're pricing creativity. Have you had experience in some of the space where I work with production companies and creative studios? Oh yeah, quite a bit actually, but they are, um, they are a little bit different to the typical kind of client of ours, which would tends to be more in the design space and increasingly in the technology mm -hmm. in this place where design and technology meet. So there's a lot of kind of software engineering, front end development, like just anything spanning that whole spectrum. Advertising agencies less and less as the agency model changes. But we do mm -hmm. get a lot of you know motion design companies, the Promax BDA audience. Um, yeah, sure. So we get a fair number of firms from from your space. Now, what's different about them 
is yeah, it's, tell. it's it's even harder. Their world is harder because a lot of the times they're trying to sell through agencies. And you just think of the way agencies sell, the way they pitch, give everything away for free. Mm-hmm. They view their own product as commoditized, whether they admit it or not. The proof is in how they sell. And people tend to buy, people and companies tend to buy the way they sell. So if they see their services as commoditized, they see whatever they're buying from other creative or production companies as just as commoditized, if not more so. So it gets even harder to sell through agencies. And that's why I think you've probably seen the trend where a lot of these production-based organizations, if they have the chance to go client direct, they will. They give up a lot or, you know, there are trade-offs when you choose to bypass agencies and, and go direct to clients. But if I were in that space and I had the choice, if it, it seemed to be 50-50 or a fairly equal decision, I would definitely go client direct rather than through agencies. It's, I accept that it's, uh, it's tough to sell to agencies. Well, you're, you're putting your finger on a, on a shift that's been happening for the past decade or so where the client direct or brand direct space, you know, as I might call it, is really the, where the greener pastures are. It's where the opportunities are a lot more exciting. You're just not fighting old school mentalities and yeah. old school, you know, sales processes and so forth. However, like you said, it's not just you flip a switch and you're suddenly selling to brands. There's a very different sales cycle. It's longer. It's much more consultative and so forth. So I think you're, you're right to sort of warn people that that's where I would go, but it's not as simple as just go do it. I, th- I think it's harder to crack into it. And I think just the mm-hmm. way some agencies are kind of addicted to the pitch, they're just, they're used to sitting back and waiting for the RFPs to come in. I think some in the production or motion graphic business, whatever label you want to put on your audience, I think they find it easier to, well, I've just got these two like meaningful agency relationships and they send me enough opportunities for me to get by. So I don't actually have to go out and actively sell beyond these relationships. Which works right until it doesn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's the wake up call. I mean, this is, it's such a common, uh, I think, concern I hear that pretty much every firm I work with that I know in the industry, if I sat down with them and had a candid conversation with the owner, he would say, we really have a sales problem. And what's interesting is even firms that are doing well think they have a sales problem. And I'm, and I, I often look at that and I wonder, is it a sales problem or is it a positioning problem? Is it a marketing uh, problem? What do you usually find is sort of once you start to drill into that it's not just a sales problem. It's something deeper. Well, it's funny because I just three or four hours ago, David Baker and I recorded the next episode of Two Bobs. And we talked about that. And, he, and he's recently done a survey on this. Well, he put the question out to thousands of agency principals and said, you know, of your new business challenges, what specifically like rank the challenges as you see them? And, uh, and he thought a sales challenge would be number one. And it was the bottom of the list. Number, right. number one was positioning. They saw that. They, uh, no, sorry. Number one was lead generation. I just, and we were kind of right, laughing flipped. about it on the show because he and I have both heard so many times agency principals say, you know, I just, I'm really good in a meeting. You, I just need to get more meetings. And if I had yeah, a, just get, this is the old, right. The age old yeah. myth of, oh, just get me in front of the right people. Yeah, and yeah. I'll- I'm really good at closing. I'm everybody says that everybody says that. And I remember 
you know, I told you the story about when I transitioned from living in the city to the woods and I took this contract new business job with me. And at some point, my boss said to me exactly that. He said, I'm pretty good at getting meetings. Just get me more meetings. He said, I want to I want to pay you based on the meetings you get me. Okay. And I said, I, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said, oh, I don't know. Trust me. And, and I said, okay, fine. You want to pay me based on meetings? You can pay me based on meetings. So about six months later... I generated a fair number of meetings and he hadn't closed any of them. And he came back to me and said, well, I think we need to revisit your compensation plan. And I thought, well, I'm surprised <laughs> it took you this long because right. if Six I'm months. incentivized to get you meetings, I'm going to get you meetings. And it, I don't really care how well qualified those meetings are. And I, you know, my story is just one of maybe a couple of dozen that I've heard from from other people over the years where firms that use uh, outsourced new business, like cold calling organizations, mm, they, sure. they try to outsource the function a lot, try to outsource the function entirely. They end up showing up to a lot of meetings where somebody, well, first of all, like meetings where the, uh, the client's a no-show, but I've heard so many stories <laughs> of people saying, okay, you got 10 minutes. The guy on the phone said he wouldn't get paid unless I had a meeting with you. So you got 10 minutes. <laughs> That is not a good setup. They're not all that bad. You know, that's one of the more egregious examples, but there's just so many stories like that. So if you, if you incentivize meetings, you're going to get more meetings and it's just not, I've never seen, I haven't tested it as scientifically as somebody like David Baker would test it, but I've just never seen a direct correlation between volume of meetings and business one. Now, There are some exceptions to that. And the one that we need to talk about here is if you are selling into Hollywood, that culture, the filmmaking business in California, the entertainment business, that is meeting based. Yes, for sure. (laughs) I have worked with various firms that have sold to studios and there's just no way around that, that I've been able to see. There's just no way around the standard decades old approach of meet somebody socially, get a meeting. You've got 10 minutes in the meeting, make your pitch. I just haven't seen a way around that in that space. Well, I will say though, that to your point about the person just getting meetings, that the classic rep model, which is still somewhat prevalent in the advertising, you know, the commercial production company space, yeah, it's, it's really shrunk in the broadcast and entertainment space because that person that's just kind of hammering people and making lots and lots of calls and getting lots and lots of meetings there's just not many left. And the ones that are left have had to become a lot more, I would call it consultative. You know, they have to be insightful and educational as opposed to, hey, I got you the meeting. You know, you just walk in and, and do your clothes thing, you yeah. know, work your magic. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad it's changing because I've never liked the model. I've never thought it was all that effective. So it's time for, I mean, you know, the biggest driver of the way of the change in how new business is done and how the change over the last decade and a half is Google. It's so easy to find an expert. And there are all kinds of, there's not all kinds of, but there's an often cited study on this that says, I think the latest number is 57% of the purchasing decision in a B2B sale is made before there's ever even a conversation with the salesperson. That number keeps getting Mm. updated. It might be higher. but It's going up basically every year. Google is enabling that, right? So it's like, if if you want to find an expert in an area, you just type them into your device and you come up with some options and then you go to their website, you learn more, and then you reach out to the appropriate ones. Back in the day when it was so hard to find an expert, 
buyers actually relied a lot on salespeople and outbound lead generation was a sales function, whereas today it's largely a marketing function. So what's that look like as, the, as that continues, that, as that trend continues, what's going to be the impact on firms that are selling creativity? Yeah, I think so. The big shift, and you've already seen this, is as soon as you recognize that lead generation is a marketing function and not a sales function, you imagine the classic salesperson and you think of somebody who is high drive rejection proof, right? Okay. Because it's outreach, 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 smile, uh, dial, 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 dial. And they're hearing no, no, no. And they're looking for that one yes. And they can keep going after 9, 10, 20, 2100 no's, whatever it is. So that's what right, that's sure. what you think of as the classic salesperson. So, but that's not actually sales. That's the small, or it's not necessarily that small, but it's the part of sales that is lead generation. So if you take that function away from sales and you hand it to marketing and you ask yourself, well, what is left in the sales role? What's left is the careful, considered navigation of the buying cycle with somebody who has expressed an interest to you. So you go from, in lead generation, if you're treating it as a sales function, you want somebody who's high drive, who moves quickly, who's rejection proof, who can actually kind of talk people into things. And then (laughs) as soon as they get an opportunity, you want a different skill set. You want somebody yeah. who's more patience and patience is the opposite of competitive drive. So you want somebody who's more patient, who's more selective, who's more focused on the client and what's right for the client. So in complex like consultative sales, like creative services, or most customized services or most professional services, you historically, you've had this conflict where you want the high drive person doing the outreach. And then you want somebody more patient, methodical, and selective doing the closing. And if it's the same person, you've got this conflict in the role. So as soon as you take the need to generate leads away from sales, you are left with an entirely different type of salesperson, somebody who is more of a kind of a classical professional Somebody who has this clinical demeanor, they're more of a subject matter expert. They're very thoughtful. They're very selective. They can, they're natural leaders. They can push the client into thinking about their situation differently, into considering new ways of solving their problems. And that's an entirely different skill set. So the biggest thing that specialization in the internet and the search function has done is, is it's allowed us to move that lead generation function to marketing, and it's allowed us to change the nature of what selling is. You know, you're reminding me of a podcast I did a year or two ago with Robert Blatchford. And he's a, and he was an EP at Troika, which was one of the really dominant agencies. Yeah, I know them. Agencies. Okay, you know them. He, anyways, he's well-known in the industry, but he said this really great quote that backs you up. And of course, I'm going to have to dig it up here to, to really make sure I quote it accurately. But he said, good salespeople are persistent. But great salespeople don't need to be persistent. They know how to engage, how to be thoughtful, educational, or insightful. And it's, a, it's a really interesting because I think that's really what you're describing is that that lead gen, that whole sort of top of the funnel, whatever process, is really more of a marketing function, which I agree uh, completely. And then once that interest or intent starts to become stirred up, now you have a sales conversation. Yeah, that's a really insightful way of articulating what we're talking about here. He's exactly right. You do want persistence, but you don't need the level of persistence that we thought of historically. Because yeah. in a complex consultative sale, 
a classical high drive salesperson is very often guilty of pushing too hard. Well, there's also, I think, just that maddening where there's an owner that's like hungry. Okay, we're desperate. We need sales. And then there's someone standing there, you know, in our industry, it's the executive producer, you know, of sales uh, or business development person. And that owner just thinks, get more you know, send more emails, have more calls, get more meetings. And like you said, it, it leads to a desperation that I think is counterproductive when what you need to be offering is insight and expertise and those sorts of things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're bang on. <laughs> so how do we convince the world that that's true? How do we actually help people embrace this as a practice? I mean, this is probably a good time for me to mention that there's a great book <laughs> I, re I read recently. Um, because you just came out with the book. Uh, well, you didn't just come out with it, but it's called Pricing Creativity. And when did it come out? At the beginning of the year? Yeah, middle of January. So it's been out uh, as of this recording, a little over four months. Yeah. Okay. So I, I like consumed it very rapidly because I knew this was going to be, I think it, it feels like a synthesis of everything I've been hearing you talk about for maybe the past 10 years or so. So to me, it's pretty much a it's kind of like a magnum opus. And I immediately went to all of my clients and said, here, just be quiet. Just read it because there's a lot here. How, how has the book been received in general by the creative industries? Oh, I, I'm really happy. I'm really happy with the results so far. It's an expensive book. The most expensive option is $320. Then there's a $199 option and there's a $100 option. It's the I think it's the only pricing book in the world that's priced based on the principles in the book. <laughs> I love that. Well, it's funny. I, I have to, I have to like mention a brief side note that as I was thinking about doing this podcast with you, I was like, you know, I actually feel this really deep sense of obligation or appreciation for you because when I was running my studio, I ran Impossible Pictures for twenty years. The advice I got from you it made such an impact on sort of helping me make that shift. Uh, you even call it the flip, right, in the book. Yeah. That I almost feel like, wow, you really helped me make a lot of money um, that would have otherwise just been missed or left on the table or something like that. And that's my encouragement to people about this, this book is this is really, I feel like all of the things you've been talking about and preaching and studying for uh, the better part of your career have been collapsed into this book. And I would say the book's worth a thousand or $10,000 because if you close one deal, if you do that anchoring, if you learn how to upsell all these things that are, you know, of course in there, there's enormous value generation possibility, I guess I would call it. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I, it's I'm fortunate in that if you wanted to write a book and, and charge a lot of money for it, probably at the very top of the list of subjects that you would want to cover would be pricing because pricing is mm -hmm. it's I think it's largely understood among certainly among all the pricing consultants that by paying some attention to your pricing strategy, it's actually the easiest way to dramatically increase your profits. There's really nothing else you can do that is so simple to drive bottom line performance as to revisit your pricing strategy. So it is an expensive book, we've, but we've we've sold over a thousand copies and it continues to sell briskly. And the average price is over $200. So people tend to opt for the expensive option, which is a, which is the book in three formats and, and, uh, well, and the middle one. Well, I'm proud to say, I think there's maybe 12 or so of my clients that have, have bought that middle or high-end version but I agree with you on the, it is the, maybe not the easiest, but perhaps the most 
simple, conceptually speaking, thing that you can do to generate more revenue. And I think I even have a quote here that I loved where you said, you know, the easiest way to make big changes to how much you charge is to first change how you charge. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah. So what is, where does someone start, right? How do you actually start reevaluating how you charge? Yeah. So, I mean, short of, re- <laughs> short of reading the book, reading the book. <laughs> you know, there, the book is, has four sections, principles, rules, tips, and tools. So the principles are basically in that first section, I endeavor to take like everything that I absorbed over the last five years or so on the subjects of pricing and value-based pricing in particular. And there are a lot of principles, there's a lot of economic principles, there are a lot of pricing principles, there are a lot of behavioral economic principles. And so just distill them down into the fewest number that you really need to get your head around. And then one of the key principles is that all value is subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, so you need to understand that, you know, because when that was first, that idea was first presented to me, the subjective theory of value, which has reigned for about 130 years, I thought, yeah, it's a nice theory and it's largely true, but it's not entirely true. So I set to work on Blair's theory of value. I wanted to disprove the reigning theory. And it kind of took me a little while of noodling on it. And then I finally realized, oh, this is, it's it's absolutely true. Value is like beauty in that it's in the eye of the beholder. So until you, until you embrace that idea, you're going to be, you're going to have some challenges. So that's one principle. Mm-hmm. Another principle is, it's stated a little bit differently in the book, but I'll summarize it as uh, the pursuit of efficiencies comes at the cost of extraordinary profits. So the more you pursue efficiencies in your business and in a creative business, the pursuit of efficiencies is typically through raising your utilization rate. And that means billing more of the available hours in your firm. As you become a more and more efficient firm, you, you might make more and more money, but only to a certain point. And those firms that make the most money are the ones who let go of efficiencies and measuring and tracking time altogether. Because what happens is when you pursue efficiencies, you give up the ability to innovate because innovation is inherently wasteful. And innovation is the elimination of waste. If you want to create a company, I think we all want to create companies where we are laser focused on creating extraordinary value for the client. And that requires us innovating on their behalf. And that also requires us building enough time into the engagement for us to put our feet up and think. And it also requires us to build in the freedom to fail not just in the engagement, but the, as part of the culture of the organization. And an organization that is pursuing efficiencies does not allow for the freedom to fail. So those are two key principles. And then a lot of the rules in the book are built on that. And then the, the, there's a bunch of tools for specific situation guidance. Well, I can't help but almost cringe on behalf of creative business owners that are hearing that because they're thinking wait, did you just say maximizing utilization? Meaning I'm going to squeeze more hours, more billable hours out of my team. Yeah. Is conflict with innovation? Because I know as creatives, we just can't believe that. We can't believe that I'm not the most innovative that I can possibly be. But that's I would, a terrifying, I would challenge a terrifying that prospect. In your heart, everybody listening to this who sees themselves as a creative person, in their heart, they know what I just said is true. They know that yeah. the more you are packaging your creativity in units of doing hours, packaging and selling it that way, the less creative you are being. 
Well, I see this borne out, right? Where a lot of times when you, when you help someone make that shift and say, you know, go to the client and let's give them the wild idea, the crazy blue sky, whatever thing. And let's just attach a huge, big round number to it. And if they push back, we say, well, we're going to go invent something amazing. We're going to go innovate. That's what this represents. A lot of times I just had one client a couple of days ago in my accelerator who experienced this, where they, I think the biggest job they'd ever done was $25,000. And they said, Hey, we just, we just used this approach and landed a $150,000 project. We had no idea the client would actually buy it. We're blown away. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? And of all of the stories that I have received from the purchasers of the book, and there's been a few dozen the un- the, it's not universal, but the most common theme is somebody puts forward a new proposal based on the guidance in the book. And some of that guidance includes um, one of the rules is always offer options. So you put forward a proposal with three options. One of the rules is begin with a high anchor. Mm-hmm. So you've got three different prices. You start with the largest one. And so the most common piece of feedback is I did my first one page proposal with three options and a high anchor and the client immediately bought the high anchor. And so I get all of these creative professionals are coming back and they are <laughs> dumbstruck and they are in that moment, they look back on their careers and they finally realize how long and by how much they have been undercharging their clients. So this is where I say, listen, everyone, please. <laughs> it is possible. And I mean, I mean, I'm just glowing here because I experienced this for myself and I, and I give you a lot of thanks and credit for helping me make that transition, but it must be gratifying for you seeing this become hopefully the, the dominant view rather than the classic, well, we offer services and we have rates and we have, you know, billable hours and that's, and and we're just this factory kind of cranking out stuff. I I am so grateful. And I I have to give a shout out to a couple of people who've been very influential to me. Ron Baker, Ronald J. Baker has written a few books on pricing, pricing on purpose and implementing value pricing. And I had the honor of sharing a stage with him last week for the first time. And he is, he is, um, he's probably leading the charge across all the professions in trying to bury the billable hour and eliminate the timesheet. And a colleague of his in the Verisage Institute that Ron runs, which is a think tank, is Tim Williams, who's an advisor to ad agencies. He's yes, been on the pricing thing he's, for he's a great. long time. And both of them, um, when I said I was going to write this book, they were both very supportive of it. And I, I was worried that we would think, oh, yeah, we don't need another person offering pricing guidance, but they, they are both like me. They're both driven by the idea that the more of us who are out there preaching this guidance, the faster we can affect real change in the creative profession. So I've just been so honored and, and touched by how kind of welcoming and magnanimous the two of them have been. And their, their attitude is the same as mine now, which is the more, the more people pushing this, the better. There's so much change that needs to happen. There are so many firms doing it the old way and the ineffective way. It's just such a, it's such a big task ahead of all of us, but, uh, man, it's, it sure is fun. This, you know, the stories that I get back, the, uh, I get like handwritten notes with stories sure. that come yeah. with gifts in the mail. Like it's really, really, it's been very moving. Well, it's it, maybe someday if we can continue on this journey, we will take the billable hour out back and shoot it. <laughs> right. You know, and that creative firms will say, oh yeah, do you remember back 
in the early 2000s when people used to charge by the hour. Yeah, and God, I would say the same thing about are. pitching, right? You know, maybe when they look yeah, sure. to this place where the free pitch is dead, that's never, neither of those things are ever going to happen. But I love the idea that maybe a large minority a large minority are <laughs> a large minority. I yeah, like it. Are never not the majority. I don't know that we'll ever get to the place of majority, but I love the idea that a large minority will get out of the free pitching business and start charging based on the value they create for their clients, the extraordinary value that they create for their clients, and not based on the input of time and materials or the market value in air quotes of their deliverables. Well, that's and maybe that's a good question or little segue to something else I was going to ask you, because I know we only have a little more time left. Pitching, we could obviously do a whole series of podcasts on pitching. And I'm, I'm equally as passionate uh, as you are about the whole subject. I'm curious, I have this theory, I guess I would call it, that a lot of what you've said and uh, and a lot of these other experts, they really touch on how there's something about pitching and there's even maybe as it relates to pricing that taps into our human fears. And I'm just curious if that resonates with you because it's, it's almost something I've heard you touch on here and there. And it's for some reason when that invitation, Hey, will you pitch us? No, there's no pitch fee pitch for free that what people are really taking advantage of is our fear. Is that, is that true in your experience? You mean fear of missing out? If I don't participate, then this opportunity is going to bypass me. Yeah. And that may, and fear that I'm not good enough, fear that I'm not actually expert, fear that I, I just don't have what it takes Well, to say, no, screw you. We're going to charge for this or we're going to lead you through this process and not just react. I think the reason why if it's, I think the reason why firms are in that position where they've, they feel like they've got to take this opportunity because they actually don't see themselves as meaningfully different. And that's being seen as meaningfully different. Being seen as a deep expert is what gives you power in the buy-sell relationship and uh, the power to push back and to say, no, we're not going to do that. How about we do this a different way? So I I think, you know, any fear that somebody's experiencing is real around the fear that, well, I'm just not all that different enough. So that's where the fear of missing out comes from. I actually think there's some of that going on, but in at least equal measure is... I think clients, unbeknownst to them, are kind of preying on the creative person's desire to present. And I talk about this in the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. The second proclamation is we will replace presentations with conversations. And I'm fond of saying that the dirty little secret that we share in the creative professions is that we are addicted to the presentation. So we like to say that we work transparently and collaboratively with our clients, (laughs) but we keep creating these scenarios where instead of actually working transparently and collaboratively, we withhold information from the client and then we unleash all of this information in the presentation. And so you're listening to this thinking, well, no, we like you need to you need to present your creative strategy or your findings or whatever it is. And I'm saying you don't need to present. The reason you keep going into presentation mode is the reasons are entirely personal. The reasons are yes. you're building this rationale for something that is actually quite meaningful to you personally. And I know this is true because creativity is the ability to see. 
It's the ability to bring fresh perspective to a problem. And it's directly linked. Creativity is directly linked to the ability to think on your feet. So creative people excel at being in the front of a room, facing an audience, about to do a presentation, and they get off on this adrenaline rush of, okay, in a minute, I'm going to show the slide or turn the boards around. And I am either going to be the hero or the goat. And it's that standing at the precipice right before the big reveal. We are addicted to that moment. We build our business around that moment. We love presenting so much. We're willing to do it for free. Wow. You've really nailed something there that I, of course, sadly, I've experienced, I experienced it many, many times in my life and I've witnessed it in so many owners. I call it this temptation to, you know, to do the big reveal, right? You know, like when they would, they would bring out Ford would bring out their new car at the whatever grand world auto showcase. And there'd be a big sheet over it. And there's that moment when you, you know, pull off the sheet. And like you said, you're the hero. Oh my God, he's the lone auteur. He's the great inventor, creator, designer. I love it. You're genius. a genius. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, every now and then we hit and we win and it feels so euphoric. However, most of the time we lose and we just, we're always in search of that adrenaline rush like you described. Or it's the, the fear it of losing. I remember the first big creative presentation I did at a, a large uh, global ad agency I worked I worked at. And I remember the, presenting the creative and I wasn't the creative, I was the suit and the creatives weren't in town. So it was out in a remote location. And, uh, and I presented and then there was just silence in the room. And then somebody made a <laughs> comment about the ad they were looking at. And then as soon as somebody made the first comment, it's like the room exploded in anger. Yes. And I remember thinking, I, how do I get out of this room? And that moment, you know, it's, it's the potential of being seen as the hero mixed with the fear of the uncomfortable silence and somebody saying, uh, did you ever even read the brief? <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. So it's that not knowing. It's That's the sweaty palm moment. And your expectation is you're going to be the hero, but there's this possibility that it could all go horribly wrong. And if it goes horribly wrong, then you're going to have to dance. You're going to have to call on those creative skills to get yourself out of the situations. I wonder, Blair, do you think it's even like an addiction? You know, oh, what I think yeah. what you're describing is almost like, you know, I'm going to take this drug and I'm going to have this incredible sensation. But then once I crash, meaning I lose a pitch, now I've got to go back and I've got to get another hit. Joel, I've been talking about this issue for 15 years. And (laughs) right now, like my palms are sweating. Right. And as soon as I start, I'm so keenly aware of this. I was on a stage last week and I started to talk about this. And as soon as I start to talk about it, I get sweaty palms because I I take myself back into that moment of the big reveal. Mm. It's Mm. you. We go into the state of flow at Mahai Csikszentmihalyi called the state of flow. He wrote the book Flow and... Uh, he studies creativity and happiness. He's a psychologist. I don't know if he's still practicing. He's got the unpronounceable name, <laughs> but it's Mahai Csikszentmihalyi. It's the state of flow where we are, we're pushed out towards the edge of our abilities, but not beyond. We have a sense of being in control. We have a sense of mastery. Time both speeds up and slows down. Our senses become heightened. And in mm. some instances, our palms sweat. We are in that sense of flow and that's where we are happiest. That's where a creative person is happiest at the front of the room doing a presentation 
So we build everything around it and it's been to a massive detriment. And as you said, leading into the whole topic that clients in a way, perhaps unknowingly, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, take advantage of it. Yeah. And let's face it, you know, a lot of clients out there, not necessarily the big executives, but the middle manager clients, they love running the audition, right? Get up on stage, dance for me, right? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, when a creative studio production company reaches out and says, hey, middle manager, we'd love to have a talk with you. We'd love to have a meeting. We would love to come in and present some ideas. That person is like, you mean I get to get out of my cubicle yep. and hang out with really cool people from Los Angeles who want to show me all these sexy, amazing, creative things? Sure. Yeah. I'll you, let you pitch me for free. You, Go. You are, as, you are as close to Hollywood as your clients will ever get, right? You're the yeah. freaky people with the pretty pictures and all the cool technology and you dress differently and all of these things. And it's just, they love nothing more than for you to come in and dance. So I think I'll mention that The thing that I love about your book is there truly is, I think, a medication or a a salve for this (laughs) addiction because there is a very, you know, you do approach this subject in a way that I think is, it's structured, it's thoughtful, and it's perhaps counterintuitive in many ways, but it rings true. So this is where I'm really inviting owners that might have that addiction to say, hmm, Maybe I need to, maybe I need to slow down and work on this addiction. Yeah. And there's a certain percentage of your audiences. They've already quit listening. And it's like, ah, this is crap. I don't, like, I no don't believe any of this. That's not possible. Yeah, where you're what I would call it the pre-contemplation <laughs> stage. You're in denial. Well, we'll just see. Or right? maybe so, you're just young. <laughs> yes, there is that too, right? Because you just, yeah. when you're young, you just say, I'm just going to push harder and I'll work faster. I'll out hustle everyone. And it's like, okay, that's a season. And it, yeah. it, it too, this too shall pass. Polishing slide 50 on the deck at 3am is a lot of fun early in your career, but Man. I can promise you at some point it's no longer fun. I, yeah. I can promise you there's a day in your career when you will say, wow, I really don't care about that. I don't yeah. give a crap about slide 50 at three in the morning. I just don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me let me also give points some people to the the resources that you guys have because you mentioned that you do have training programs. Of course, we've talked a lot about the book, and so everyone, how would people find the book for starters? And then mention uh, some of the training things that you guys do. So, my first book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, is available on Amazon. But the current book, Pricing Creativity: A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour, is available only at pricingcreativity.com, and that'll actually take you to or redirect you to a page on winwithoutpitching.com, and that's where you can learn more about our training program. So, we do public workshops, we do private workshops, and then we do remote training. So, there's all kinds of different ways that we train folks on the Win Without Pitching approach to new business. And do- do you do those uh, wherever you are in British Columbia or do you travel and do those in some of the major markets? Uh, I have a coaching team in three different U.S. markets, but we travel to wherever. I still do the odd training session, not very much anymore. I'm increasingly getting out of that. But my team, all of my coaches are former clients of mine who have each have more than 10 years experience in selling the win without pitching way. They're all better at this than I am. So we go, we work all over the world. We have clients from certainly not every country, but every part of the world. Yeah. Well, I was going to also mention that I really love your email 
newsletter, if you call it that, that goes out. It's one of the ones, one of the few ones that when I get it, I always flag it because I know I'm going to come back and read it and find something juicy there that uh, just, again, challenges my thinking, gives me something to chew on. So that's something I would recommend people sign up for as well. Yeah, that's at winwithoutpitching.com. Okay, cool. Blair, wow, I can't uh, thank you enough. It's been fun for me anticipating talking with you because of the impact you've had on you had on my sort of former life. But I'm really appreciative for all of the work that you've done and just how generous you've been with creating this knowledge and sharing it with the world. And I'm just excited for people to tap into it and put it to work. Let's let's keep building that minority you described. Yeah, thanks, Joel. It's been re- my real pleasure to be here. I know we've been trying to put this together for a while. And I want to give a shout out to the opening act who opened ahead of me. Was it Daryl Baker? Dar- yeah, uh, David, I think. Da- David. Oh, yeah. David, David C. Baker. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a good guy. He he said he was happy to open for you. He, yeah. he, <laughs> apparently, he does it quite often. <laughs> David and I are doing a two-day event in London, June 25th and 26th for the Design Business Association. And then we're taking it to Sydney, Australia in October. And I just pity the audience because it's going to be two days of uh, he and I beating up on each other in a loving way. Of course. I bet there's going to be a lot of witty banter and, uh, you know, jokes made on each other's expense. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks again, Joel. This has been great. Great. Thanks, Blair. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more free resources, updates on upcoming events, or to learn how RevThink consultants advise creative entrepreneurs, please visit RevThink.com.